This is the DLR Cast, the essential podcast for fans of Diamond David Lee Roth. All right, Darren, what's happening? We are here for the DLR Cast. Good to see you and hear from you again, Darren, as we close out 2020 with yet another cool interview. A cool interview would be an understatement. I, I think you need to sell a little higher on Rich Hilton, Richard Hilton, whatever you want to call him, because wow, has that guy played with everybody? Wow. He, he really has. And of course, for those who don't know, Richard Hilton uh, played keyboards on the Your Filthy Little Mouth album. So uh, that, in a, you know, a couple episodes ago, we had Ron Wixo, the drummer, uh, the drummer from the Your Filthy Little Mouth tour. Now we got somebody from who recorded, actually recorded with Dave, Your Filthy Little Mouth. And Rich really gives some cool insights. And he's got a uh, songwriting credit or two on the album, if I recall, and really yeah. gave us some really cool insights and information on the recording of the album and the what you know creatively how he was just encouraged to just you know bring it to the table and have a great time with it. And we what we saw looking at the background into a studio, we saw an actual hand drawn thing from Dave. Saw a thing next to it that looked like David Bowie gave it to him. So he's kind of one of those guys who's always been earning a living working with top guys, and he's not the household name, but you kind of wonder if that's by design. Did uh, I'm, not, I'm not asking you to Google right now, but did you figure out who the Connecticut person he was talking about uh, anonymously was? No, I, I, I did not. My first thought for some reason, I was wondering, I mean, there's a, several people live in Connecticut, obviously, musically, yeah. but for some reason, my first thought was, Michael Bolton. I know Michael Bolton's from Connecticut. Yeah, I think he still lives in Connecticut. Yeah. yeah. And um, I don't know why that popped into my head, but it, it sounded like, because he didn't want to mention the name, it sounded like somebody we would know because he didn't want to mention the name that we would have heard of. So. Yeah. Whether it's Michael Bolton, Keith Richards, he's been a guy that's been around Connecticut for a lot of years. Uh, David Letterman has had a record label. You never know if Worldwide Pants is doing music stuff. I had no idea. Yeah, so those are just some incredible credits that the guy has. You don't have to stretch to go, well, with Bowie, it's a 1964 demo he played. <laughs> it's nothing like that. He played with people while they were still great. Well, yeah, and if, and we won't give away the whole interview, but when we talked to him about how did you first connect with Dave, it was while he was recording with David Bowie at the Hit Factory, which is where they ended up doing the A Filthy Little Mouth record. That's where he met him, Dave, for the, right? Did, that's where he met Dave for the first time. And, yeah. you know, imagine that meeting of the minds. You know, you got David Bowie recording and you're working on that record and all of a sudden David Lee Roth walks in. And by the way, both produced by Nile Rodgers and it's, you know, Nile's doing, producing the session for David Bowie. So little, little bits of cool information that us DLR fans uh, love and we keep finding out here at the DLR cast. And his name had come up in the previous episode with Ron Wixo, the drummer who wound up touring in support of that album. And Greg Bissonette's name comes up in pretty much every interview. With Ron <laughs> yeah. It's a yeah. great, small, connected uh, David Lee Roth kind of world. It really is. It really is. I, uh, I was thinking also, too, we got the touring drummer. We have one artist who played on the actual album. So if we can work our way through the studio personnel who played uh, on the Filthy Little Mouth album, you know, then we'll tackle the pre, you know, you've already spoke to Greg Bissonette, uh, who played on uh, 
three David Lee Roth albums. So if you're out there, Terry Gilgore, Terry Kilgore, we want you. Uh, Obviously, Steve Vai, we'd love to have you. Billy Sheehan, uh, John Five, Steve Hunter. I mean, you know, so there's it's a lengthy list uh, through Dave's solo canon that folks that we'd love to talk to. So, but yeah, that was the Richard Hilton interview was a hell of a lot of fun. Very, what a great guy. What a nice guy. It's just people you enjoy talking to. And he's definitely one of them. What a great guy. In, in speaking for 30 or 40 minutes, whatever it was, you don't feel like you even got 80% of the story, 60%, 40%. You know, I would have thought, hey, has he met this person or this person or this person? Didn't even delve into that. Didn't even ask him if he was a Van Halen fan, uh, which records from Dave's catalog he's a fan of. So that also you know, begs the question, do we go for a part two with somebody like that after we've spoken with uh, the people you just mentioned? Yeah, yeah, possibly. I mean, we'll figure it out. I mean, one of the things I like about, really liked about the Rich Hilton interview and these interviews in general is that, you know, we're finding out things that we ordinarily wouldn't know. I mean, you know, what, I, I want to know what the recording process is like, you know, I want, with Dave, right? I want to know how, you know, the, the writing songs with him went, you know, and, and suggesting, I mean, because I think some people might think, and there's been enough interviews over time where I think that dispel this notion, but, you know, in the studio, at least, it's very, well, I think we reaffirmed with Richard was that it's very collaborative. I mean, Dave's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, he's not going in there with uh, a dictator mentality saying you must play these songs this exact way. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, And I, and that comes, I think that comes forth on most of the records, not always on your filthy little mouth, which is definitely a different record, but that's not, I don't, that's for different reasons we can discuss uh, another time, but certainly that's just my own personal opinion on the sound of the record and just the, mm-hmm. just the overall feel to it. Just, I mean, but nevertheless, I mean, it is. I've always loved that record. It is a cool record, and it was definitely at a time when it was a huge, uh, it, it, you know, it was definitely a huge change for Dave musically as far as what he was what he was doing. So, yeah, it's nothing like the album before, and it's nothing like the album after. And I, I don't think I even told you this. I reached out to Bob Rock's assistant. I went, hey, is Bob available? And they said, well, yeah, come back to us after the holidays. So hopefully we can get some insight because I've never heard Bob Rock talk about A Little Ain't Enough. No, and that's one record. That's definitely one of my favorite Dave records. I never like to put things in ranking order, but after I eat them and smile, that is right. I mean, you know, in successive order, that as far as the third release from Dave Solo, that could be my third favorite David Lee Ross solo. It's one I go back to as much as any other record and listen to. And I've always loved the sounds Bob Rock has got, whether it's with Motley Crue, Metallica, um, the cult, he, the yeah. cult definitely. Uh, I'd love to ask him about a band. He was in, he had a band for one album. I think it was in the early '90s, mid '90s, called Rockhead, that he plays guitar on and has some musicians on it. That I, it was very much in that. Uh, if you liked uh, Cinderella and bands like that, and that oh, yeah. kind of hard rock, melodic rock stuff. This was that band. It's a great record that I don't think anybody, there's stuff on YouTube about it. So man, if we get him, I'm all, I'm already excited about this. <laughs> well, as always from talking with you, I now have homework to do. Uh, <laughs> because of you, I know about Glenn Burtnick's solo output. So I'm oh. doing some rocket research later tonight. <laughs> Jeez, I wonder if we can do a Glenn Burtnick cast. That guy is uh, uh, that 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 guy deserves to have platinum records everywhere, all, all lining all through his house. He's amazing. So Burtcast, yeah, yeah, and he's an East Coast guy. So, uh, but it just reminded me before we get out of here too. Uh, uh, we started uh, a fledgling little Twitter account. So at it's at 
the DLR cast. So if you want to find out, if you want to get inane information and various things, I mean, in truth, I need to dig into it a little bit more, but it is kind of cool to, to uh, follow a bunch of folks. We might be following, we follow a bunch of different folks. We can certainly use some followers, but get on the ground floor of a, of a hot and happening Twitter trend. And that's at the DLR cast. So. We may not be the Roth army, but maybe no. the Roth Navy, the Roth Marines, something like that. Yeah, well, we had to get into at least some social media with the podcast. You can't be a podcast without having a social media presence somewhere. So, and exactly. Twitter, why the hell not? So, there will exactly. not be there will not be a DLR cast on TikTok. I, I ne never say never, but um, as of right now, that's not where I want. That's not where I think we should go. <laughs> no Snapchat, no TikTok, no nothing but yeah, as Dave would say. Exactly. Exactly. So. Exactly. Well, stay tuned for Richard Hilton. And as always, we certainly appreciate the downloads and the streams and hope you're enjoying it. If you're having half as much fun as we are with this, well, then this is this is a success. Yes. Thanks to everyone for listening. More coming soon, we promise. Right on. Thanks for making this happen on such short notice. Uh, a lot of people you kind of have to wait and wait and wait and wait and follow up. Not Rich Hilton. Well, <laughs> I don't mind. Um, I'm not that busy right now and I don't mind. And I like talking about this because it was a very enjoyable period of my life. And in fact, you see that right there behind me on the wall? Yes. That's a piece of artwork by David Lee Roth that he gave uh, me and the engineer at the end of the project. It's personally inscribed at the bottom. How cool is that? Huh. It looks like Donald Duck. Kind of, well, it's a little bit of Donald Duck. It's a little bit of Dave. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, but it's his sort of tattoo artwork style that he likes to do. Okay. So that actually leads me to a question, if you don't mind getting straight into it, which is... No, go ahead. That we, the internet people who are big David Lee Roth fans, have been seeing these great cartoons for about a year now but was he doing all the drawing way back then and i asked that because sometimes you hear stories about dave like oh well i have three thousand hours of practice in this and you go when did he do that for three thousand hours if he was touring and recording well i can't speak to the numbers but um when we did your filthy little mouth which was uh 1993 i believe every song has a work of art that is the lyric sheet every song and in fact i think the original booklet for the album contains some of these if i'm not mistaken and i can tell you absolutely categorically that when i saw a video of the last van halen tour with those giant video screens behind them mm -hmm. there were times where the hand-drawn david lee roth lyric sheets went by because I saw them and I said, look at that. That's one of Dave's, you know, and I had the sense when we made the record that this wasn't the first time he had done them. I think this is part of his sort of Zen preparation for how to approach and create this song when he's finished. I think when he's ready to commit everything like a lyric and a piece of artwork like that, he's feeling, I think that's part of his process, his preparation. I've Dave is Never heard a that. Remarkably astute and talented person in a lot of different areas. So 
when you hear him saying, I've spent so many hours or whatever, you know, preparing myself in this way. I mean, he's a he's a serious martial artist. He's a serious graphic artist. He's a serious musician, as well as an amazing singer. Like most of the particularly rock and roll best singers that I've worked with, he plays guitar pretty well. He's not just uh, some guy who sang in the shower. He's actually a musician, Dave Roth, and he can... Um, he comes with the goods and that album was unique anyway because of the collaboration between him and Kilgore. Yeah. Kilgore, who he was working with before Van Halen. I can't imagine he had a lot of people in his life from before Van Halen besides Terry Kilgore. I know that Terry Kilgore and he met in school. I don't know where, at what point, it may have been like junior high school, which is now called middle school. It may have been in that era of their lives, but it wasn't much, it certainly wasn't any later than high school. So he's he knew Kilgore for a long time. I think he knew Kilgore before he knew the Van Halens. I could be wrong about that. I am speaking out of turn. I, I'm speculating. I don't know exactly <laughs> when he met the Van Halens. I'm not that down in the chronology, but he knew Kilgore a long time. And, uh, I thought Terry's work on that record was brilliant. I really just think very highly of Terry's playing. And uh, and I actually, well, anyway, we'll get to that. But uh, it was great. It was it was fun. That's, so getting to, as far as getting to the point where you were, um, you know, ended up on the project, I was that through your, you've got an extensive relationship with, and a lot of projects with Nile Rogers, who yes. produced the record. Is that how you came to, Yes. In the studio and record the record. Yes. Dave showed up one day at uh, Hit Factory while we were working with David Bowie. And in fact, I distinctly remember him by the ping pong table. We had a ping pong table we used to travel with. Uh, we were all fairly decent, serviceable ping pong players, pretty good kind of ping pong players. And we would have good games. Anyway, I remember Dave kind of showing up around the time when we were playing ping pong and uh it was like, oh, cool. We're going to work with Dave. I, I hadn't, you know, I wasn't privy to the planning stages. So it was a pleasant surprise for me at the time because I'm a fan. So it wasn't Excellent. an audition or anything like that. It's just Nile said me? what we're doing and here we are. For me, by that time, I started with Nile Rogers in March of 1988 mm -hmm. and uh, worked on pretty much everything from that point forward uh, until, I don't know, for a long, long time, for many, many years. And still to this day, quite uh, quite often, and I still play in his band. Um, so Dave was the next project we were going to, there was always a next project and usually there was more than one. Uh, and Dave was the next thing we were going to do. Wow. Go ahead. Steve. So when when you guys started recording, I want to, and I know you have a co-write on the record. I want to get to that separately. But when you guys started recording, I mean, were the songs fully formed? They were ready to go as far as you know the arrangements. They were rehearsed um, because the band was, you know, not the band that he took on the road with him later. You know, Terry he probably hadn't played with since way before Van Halen. So I was just curious as to how those songs, the genesis of those songs, as far as from when you guys got on the project and the recording process started? The songs were substantially written between him and Terry prior to my coming on the project and prior to, prior to us recording anything. Um, 
I'm trying to, I'm, I want to, uh, yeah, I should have thought about this before. Uh, <laughs> I want to review, I'm reviewing the basic track sessions in my head. So <laughs> um, the songs were largely thought out and planned out prior to our, and, and Dave had a pretty clear idea of what this album was going to be. Not in every respect, but in general. And then there were songs that it got added along the way. And there was, there were songs that got revisited along the way. Um, but Dave had a pretty clear idea and vision of what he wanted, which is quite often the case when you're working with Dave and, uh, and his ideas are really, really good. Um, high, high percentage. He hits a ridiculously high percentage. He hits better than Ted Williams. Um, <laughs> Orange or uh, batter right there. Yeah. I, I would say anyone who's 50% or higher is a lot better than Ted Williams. Well, Dave hits a, a huge yeah. percentage in terms of his creative output, you know, like it, nobody hits hundred percent on, on, on ideas in life. I don't think, but Dave hits a pretty damn good percentage. And uh, we had a great, so um, the songs were mostly formed. Basic track sessions were planned. It was recorded at hit factory on Broadway in New York, uh, 54th street, rather. It was called the Broadway hit factory. And uh and the basic track sessions, you had Tony Beard on drums, um, John Regan on bass, Kilgore on guitar, and Dave. And I, I don't think I played any of the basics on that record. I think it was pretty much guitar trio and Dave singing the uh, the original vocals, the the vocals that uh, end up getting supplemented later. You know, so that that was kind of how the basic track went. And then there was time in the production later where other things got added in certain, I think one song has an electronic basis in the drums, which is a uh, no big ting. And, uh, you know, and other things developed like the vocal ideas that got used, the way the vocals were presented that kind of grew out of She's My Machine and then kind of crossed into other tracks in terms of how we produced, uh, the vocal arrangements so as far as keyboards and your contributions on the songs i mean the basic tracks were cut then you came in and it was a kind of collaborative or you kind of knew where to go with it as far well, as i was in additions? and it was collaborative and i was in already i mean I, I wasn't necessarily playing in the initial stages but i'm always there uh at that point when we're making the records and uh i um I played the keyboard. First of all, the demos had certain keyboards on them that suggested certain things that, that were integral to their vision of how the arrangement should go. So for example, with the Will, uh, what's the Willie Nelson song? Nightlife? Nightlife. Yep. Yeah. Um, that, that one had that sort of synthy string arrangement kind of vibe to it that needed to represent that. But in hopefully not, you know, I try not to get kitschy about things like that. If that's a word that'll translate to the audience, you know, I try not to be gaudy or um, ostentatious in the programming for those kinds of things. So, and there's a lot of keyboards that are very, very subtle. Like for example, in the song sunburn, there's a keyboard playing along with the guitar through the entire song that just kind of adds atmosphere. It's play, it's very much textural and not a part. It's not a, Hey, look at me part. It's basically playing exactly what Terry's playing but it just adds a texture to what he's playing that kind of gives it this sort of otherworldly quality that that track was asking for because he's, you know, he's in his chair and he's, the sun's beating down, you know, it's, it's got that kind of vibe to it. 
to, to yeah. add on to something that Steve was just asking about. When you talk about iconic artists who clearly have the vision for the whole thing, like they thought of the art direction and the music video. And I put David Lee Roth in that category with David Bowie, Prince, Nile Rodgers even, that they are the show. They do have all the vision. And in some of the cases, like Michael Jackson, you'd actually hear him singing the keyboard parts to the people, even though he didn't really play keyboards. Was Roth like that at all, where he's singing the parts to you? Mm-hmm. And what became cool is after a while, I was allowed to sing parts to him. Hmm. So, I mean, initial, of course, it has to sound like him. And it was based in what he had been doing anyway, but I could, was allowed to make a suggestion and it wasn't taken in a way that I was, you know, invading his space or anything like that. Because there came a point in the project where I became pretty deeply yeah. involved in, the, in helping him with the vocal arrangements. Because a lot of these vocal arrangements were done electronically. If you've ever heard the uh, remix version of Yo Breathe In It. Yes. There's a lot of the electronic vocals exposed there. And what that was, and people weren't, I mean, people had done this, but people weren't doing a lot of it in the way we were doing it is at that time, uh, these vocal processing devices had shown up that allowed you to retune vocals using uh, MIDI keyboard input. And so I started taking alternate lead vocal takes and producing background vocal parts by playing melodic material underneath it. And he walked in one day and said, whoa, what's that? And uh, pretty soon, pretty soon it's a thing. And it's kind of a defining thing for that record, if I do say so. I'm not trying to blow my own horn because I'm not taking credit for this. I'm not the only person who's done this. A lot of people have. It's just the way we did it on that record, and it's sort of unexpected. And with She's My Machine, it was obvious. The song's about she being my machine, and you've got a machine going, machine, you know, like electronically behind the voice. So that's sort of an obvious artistic choice to make. But in some of these other songs, it's much more subtle. And... uh it works. It's fun. It's one of my favorite things about the record is how, how, uh, what we ended up with there. And that couldn't have been part of his original vision. He didn't know that was coming. And same with artwork, like artwork can develop. You know, he doesn't come in knowing everything about everything. You just come in with a pretty clear direction of where you want to go. And these are the demos for the songs. And I like most of what's on them. So let's at least start from there. You know, so that's not uncommon for an artist to come in with some form of demo and want it to be the spark that ignites whatever we're all going to do with it now. I think finding out how collaborative this all was might surprise some folks where if I think a lot of people would probably guess like a lot of singers, whether it's, you know, somebody so successful like Dave or like Darren mentioned and Michael Jackson, you go on and on where these singular artists have come in with, all right, this is, this is exactly what I want to do. It, you know, hue to this vision and this is where we go with this, which I I'm not surprised hearing that it wasn't that way. And I would suspect that, you know, Niall is such, uh, Niall Rogers is such a creative producer as far as the sounds he gets and what he gets out of people. Um, it's just super cool to hear how collaborative it was, even down to the, you know, the music making aspect and, and, and as well as adding new effects and trying new things. So, I mean, it, the house wasn't totally 100% built uh, when you guys first all walked into the studio. Well, and to his credit, and the, I think one of the reasons why it was satisfying, as it turned out being, was because um, 
he was open to stuff. I mean, as much as he had a vision for how it should be and what it should do, he was listening to what the people he had were doing. And I'm not talking about me necessarily. I'm talking about all of these guys and going, that's cool. Can you do, you know, like he, he wasn't set in his ways at all. He's a really, really um, creative and receptive person. I think that really sums it up, not set in his ways, because up to that point, um, I mean, your filthy little mouth was a big departure stylistically as far as sound, but also the types of songs that were on there. I mean, you know, you've got the rockers, but you've got nightlife, which I don't think surprised people if you knew, you know, if you heard just a gigolo and stuff, but it was, and um, that's life from the first solo album, but it kind of encompassed a lot of what he was doing all together into one, what I always thought was a really cohesive package. And it took some chances, I think, with a kind of a reggae song, a country-esque sort of vibe song. Uh, there's a song on there, um, and I'm just spaced on the name that reminds me, of the, I'll show you how old I am. It's the last song on on uh, on side one on the cassette. It's it's kind of got a credence vibe to it almost. And and it's just, it's, um, it's a, I'll think of the song in a second, but it's, stylistically, it really took some, it took some chances. And I think it still holds up and um, from that respect. But he's that, he's an artist. He's, he has broad influences. He's interested in a lot of different things. And when you talk to him, maybe I should say when you listen to him, um, <laughs> he's, uh, he's, um, that is the best end, line. Endlessly erudite and interesting and cool. I mean, he's yeah. very, very smart and well-read and intellectually motivated, Dave. So you are not going to have a boring day with Dave Roth. Well, I think that song was, if I remember correctly, was Hey, You Never Know. <laughs> but, that, ah, right. What a great song. I love it. Yeah. You know, he saw, you know, the, I seen it on a billboard. And so I believe it's so in the lyric. Yeah. You remember that the lottery at the time had uh, a, a, a hey, you never slogan. Know. What am I looking for? Not the slogan, a jingle or whatever. It was, uh, hey, you never know. Yeah. That was the source, the inspiration. I've seen it on a billboard and I believe it's so. It's, they say the only thing you know for certain is, hey, you never know. I, I love that song. That song is, is oftentimes a, a real credo for me. You know, you just, it's, hey, you never know. There's <laughs> a bunch of, uh, hey, uh, there's a whole lot of lyric. The man is one of the most brilliant lyricists I've ever been around. And I've been around some pretty brilliant lyricists. So um, he's, he's, he's unbelievable. Uh, I could, you, you could just quote them. They just come flying out of him and then they start showing up in the songs. It's really pretty remarkable. And they're, and they're really, really interesting. So, and every song has some kind of very cool story basis to it, uh, including your filthy little mouth, which is a, a pretty amazing song. And uh, they're, they're all fun that way. So the, and uh, the stylistic broadness, the stylistic breadth of the thing was something that was really made it so much fun because you're you're not trying to make a Van Halen album, basically. Not that that yeah. wouldn't be fun, but just that that's not really what he was there to do. You well, know, we did. Uh, what was that song with the? You know, I did those horns. What was the name of that song? Little bit of luck, which yeah. Steve Hunter and he wrote. Right. And uh, that was cool too, because that was just that's like a whole nother session from what the original that was a secondary that was another basic session that took place later in a different location and uh it's got a cool kind of r&b suit you know kind of semi r&b kind of vibe yeah it. it's fun 
And again, they had a great demo of that song. When you talk about multiple sessions, there's an album, uh, there's a song that didn't make the album called Don't Piss Me Off, which was co-written by Monty Bynum, uh, Monty Byram, who uh, co-wrote She's My Machine. And I'm assuming it's from the same sessions because it wound up on the, the best of album that Dave put out in 97. I've never heard a song called Don't Piss Me Off, but it may if it was recorded as something else, perhaps, and changed to Don't Piss Me Off, then maybe. I mean, there were songs... There was at least one song. Because some of the things showed up as extra tracks, like the one of uh, Mississippi something or other. Um. <laughs> Sorry, I don't remember the title. That's, that's, that was one of the things I wanted to ask was, was there stuff that got recorded that never made the album stuff that ended up on the cutting room floor, so to speak? There's only one song I remember that he decided not to include, and I don't even remember what it was called. If I thought really long and hard, maybe I'd come up with it, but I don't think you want to wait for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Don't Piss Me Off is kind of a, a shuffle, almost like a 12 bar, would you say, Steve? Wow. Like it's kind yeah, of rock I shuffle. I never heard that. I, know, I, don't, I, I never heard that. Okay, there you go. And when we spoke with Ron Wixo, who spoke the world of you, who played drums oh. on the tour of that, he talked about how there was a nightlife EP or two EPs that Steve and I didn't know about that seems to be like a limited edition live band kind of thing. Was that something that, that was on your radar? No, no, okay. but I did do two gigs with those guys. Oh, no kidding. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I sang background vocals. <laughs> yeah. Did not know that. Yeah, it's true. In uh, 94 in Florida. Wow very, wow. very kind of him to invite me and I was thrilled to do it. And they were very kind to me and very generous. And uh, I had a blast. That's great. So, yeah. so the co-write you got on there, you're breathing it. One of my lyrically, musically, one of my favorite songs on the record, another song with a completely different vibe. I mean, so how was, you got, you know, you co-wrote it. How did that, how did that come about? I mean, what was, what was the impetus of that? And, as far as my contribution, well, first of all, the impetus was they came in, Terry and Dave, with the substance of what was the song. And I helped Dave write parts in one sec vocal parts in one section of the song. And he was very kind to uh, include me as a co-writer. But the song substantially started with him and Terry, and I came on it and was asked if I had an idea for a certain thing. And sure enough, I did. And uh, that's what's there. So that's Very how cool. I got involved in the writing of it. And I consider it to be an act of uh, true friendship and generosity on the part of Dave, because I have contributed more and gotten less in my life. So <laughs> see, that seems to be a musician's lament. I'm working. I'm not lamenting. Lament I'm not lamenting no, I know. Anything. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm not lamenting anything, but I'm saying that Dave was very generous to, to include me as a writer in that song because uh, mostly it was him and Terry. And yes, I did write some melody that appears and I, I like that song too. It's a, what an amazing guitar performance that song is. It, it, it's, Terry killed that album. He really, that it was exciting and it sounded good. And he's a really good player, Terry. I love him. And uh, Wixo was great. And as I said, those guys who were the band on the road, them and uh, Jamie Hunting and uh, Brett Tuggle, who's always very, very nice to me and great and wonderful. Um, they were very kind. And that's how I met Wixo. Because, you know, Wixo is also from around where we're from. 
yeah, all the Long Island people just keep appearing. In yeah. You'll, you'll see like Pink Floyd had people from Long Island and Aerosmith's <laughs> keyboard player for 20 years is from Long Island. It's kind of the land of sidemen out here. Well, we're lucky. We were lucky to grow up in a place where, for the most part, our parents could afford to help us uh, <laughs> learn how to do these kinds of things. I'm not, you know, trying to get too sentimental here, but uh, artistically, it was a thriving place. You know, I was, uh, you know, may he rest in peace. You know, Leslie West mm-hmm. is from Long Island and uh, played in the Vagrants. And the free, I, if I remember correctly, the Hassles used to open for the Vagrants. The Hassles fronted by Billy Joel. Yeah, right. Oh. Exactly. He used to open for the Vagrants. So, you know, there's a rich history, you know, and, you know, that goes very deep. And I was lucky to be around what I was around when I was a kid. And I'm very thankful for it. I, I've That's got great. a, a sideman question that has almost nothing to do with David Lee Roth, which <laughs> sure. I always love to find this stuff out. Uh, you'll find that people who are successful, who've worked for decades, have other people that are peers at, that are at their level, comparable to their level, that they trade gigs with or they sub gigs with. You know, they're the first call that, oh, I can't do it. Hey, do you want to do it? Who are those people that you've traded gigs with? Mostly, I don't, I haven't gigged with that many people besides Niall and Sheik for all of these years. I did do those few shows with Dave and I did play a show with members of the B-52s once and things like that. But it wasn't, I wasn't subbing out somebody's gig. Now, the, the case where I do have that is here, here in Connecticut, um, near where Niall lives, there's another major artist who I think I probably should be discreet and, uh, and, uh, and his team and his guy who engineers for him is one of my best buddies. And so there have been cases where in rare moments where one of us has a family obligation or something that makes us have to run away, you know, to go do something and we need coverage. He and I, my friend who works for this other famous guy in Westport, Connecticut, um, we could, we can, you know, spot for each other. And, uh, and that's a wonderful thing because there aren't that many people who work like we do. So it's a real, you know, I, and what I mean, what I mean by that is do all of these different things for a particular guy. You're basically, you know, you're, it's almost mid, uh, I don't want to make it sound weird. Uh, it's, it's almost like a Renaissance time gig where, where people, musicians would get hired by the aristocracy to, you know, Joseph Haydn didn't write 106 symphonies because he felt like it. There was somebody paying who, for whom he right. was, who was paying him to do it, you know? So in a way, our jobs are a little bit like those guys where we're working at the service of one particular artistic individual who chooses to have a staff to support his artistic life. So it's not that many of us. And it's nice when you can have somebody that you can do that with, but as a player, a musician kind of thing, there's not been that much of that. I mean, there might be a sitting in moment where you're in a place and they say, come on up and play. And you get up and you go play. But um, there's not been that kind of thing very much. There was a year I wasn't mm-hmm. in cheek, but that was just because they had other ideas. Um, and so to think- your credit uh, in being so involved with Sheik and, and Niall for all those years. I don't think the average person realizes how big 
Sheik not only has been in Europe, but in Japan, you know, they've been in an arena band in Japan for like 40 years now. Um, we do very, we have, first of all, uh, our following internationally is wonderful. And in certain markets, as you say, like uh, the UK, uh, Ireland, Scotland, um, and certain parts of Western Europe, we can sell very, very well. And in America, we're starting to turn that corner now because we've been doing a bunch of arena tours. Uh, Chic has opening for various other wonderful artists that all are worthy of an hour's worth of stories. And uh, and um, so we're turning that tide quite a bit. And Niall has had this wonderful, I don't know if it's his second career or his third career or his fourth career, but he's had this wonderful renaissance in the yeah. last 10 years, particularly since his participation with Daft Punk yeah. on Get Lucky. And, um, and, and the fact is he's just a remarkably smart and entertaining and fun and nice guy and people like him. So he gets media and people find out that he's not only a really talented man, but a really nice guy. And so they, they kind of come on board, but yes, in England, it's, uh, it's remarkable how we love them and they love us <laughs> in Ireland too. And in Australia and in Japan and, it's a pretty amazing, it's a pretty remarkable thing for a band that plays music that's 40 years old or more than 40 years old. Yeah. To be viewed almost like a successful new artist in certain markets. It's pretty incredible because there's a, there's a lot of us playing funky music out here. That's wonderful songs and, you know, doing that. You know, those are cool in the gang and there's two Earth, Wind and Fires and there's like there's bands touring doing this kind of thing. But to get to this point where as a headline artist, you're selling out arenas with 43 year old music. That's pretty remarkable. I can't think of. I mean, there's, you know, guys like the who do it. You know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, there are bands that do it, but, but uh, it's kind of unusual in this sort of funk pop area, I think. And uh, I feel very blessed and privileged have anything to do with it before so, I let steve ask a good question where i was going with with the, the sideman swap gig is i thought i was gonna hear well yeah me and brett tuggles swap gigs and that's that's what happened <laughs> but over to you steve well i was gonna ask at a, at a time when uh you, you can't do gigs obviously thanks to this global pandemic what have you what have you been doing that's been keeping you busy what have you what have you been working on Personally, I've been, well, I've done some work for Niall um, uh, that on things that he's working on that I can't really talk too much about. Um, I'm in the middle of a production project of my own uh, with an artist that is new to the market here. And um, that project has been sort of in limbo for a while because we started it and then I ended up touring for like two years and then I came home for pandemic. So I've been working on that gradually. I've been doing various keyboard and guitar overdub things for people who ask me if I'll work on or play on their stuff. I consult with uh, various software companies on the things they're developing and I run, I do technological things and engineering oriented things in addition to music making. Um, and lately I've been teaching music production online to uh, some students. Oh, and there's a podcast that I do so I might as well mention it. Yes. It's not actually my podcast, but I am a participant on the panel of a podcast called Sonic Talk, 
which originates in England. And it's uh, centered around a website called sonicstate.com. And uh, it's been going on for like a dozen years and there's hundreds and hundreds of these podcasts. And uh, they have a very nice base of regular followers and I've gotten to meet some of them at trade shows and stuff and uh, become friends with some of them. And uh, we talk about music technology and synthesizers and computers and things, some a little bit about the social culture of technological kinds of things, but it's certainly anything but political or topical in the sort of current events kind of way. It's topical specific to hey, did you see this new synthesizer that came out by so-and-so and what's cool about it or what's not cool about it? So I do all of that. And then I, you know, I'm, um, you know, it's a, it's a strange time for all of us. And I don't, try, I try not to dwell too much on the things I miss. And uh, I like to joke that my new hobby is identifying my blessings and counting them because I live <laughs> in a comfortable place. I have food to eat and uh, I'm not, look it doesn't look like i'm going to get thrown out of here anytime soon and uh you know i have my best friend who i've now been missing for 10 years while i toured with chic who's right downstairs doing her work and uh you know it uh, as a person of my age and who has grown children who've moved out you have a sort of a second life with your wife i don't know uh how much of this makes sense to you guys but sure. When the kids move out, you have to reevaluate the relationship you had before, which was just the two of you. But then in the intervening 20 some odd years, you had kids. So now you have to rebuild your marriage. And uh, I'm happy to be doing that and uh, have been ever since the kids, you know, grew up and found lives of their own. It's so, awesome. All of that, you know, thankful, trying to be, trying to focus on the thankful parts and uh, ignore as much as possible the really, really unpleasant parts. Um, and they are numerous. <laughs> Those yeah, unpleasant here, parts. Here, here. And thanks uh, for the reminder on, uh, especially given the time of year, but all year round for, you know, counting our blessings. And, uh, you know, it's so easy to forget just uh, how lucky we are. I mean, you know, we're able to, at this moment, use technology and talk about, <laughs> an album recorded in 1994, you know? So yeah. um, we're not I'm sick. thankful. Exactly. We're Most not important. Sick. Yeah. yeah so, it's tough out there. So if we recap what we learned, Steve, we learned <laughs> that, that Richard works with people for a long time and he's pretty, uh, Rich is pretty easy to work with. Uh, <laughs> that's the first thing that we, we have learned. Well, the what he wrote, Rich, what he wrote back there, it says, Hey, Rich, Knocking them out is easy with you. Thanks for everything. Your pal, David Lee Roth. So That's awesome. It speaks to what, I wouldn't have mentioned it, but it speaks to what you just said. I try to be, you I, know. I, I, we, I we've learned that. We've learned that you've had, uh, you had a great experience with David Lee Roth playing with him both live for those couple of gigs and in the studio. Absolutely. He just gave a, a thumbs up for anybody that's hearing and not seeing, of course. <laughs> I, I think we learned also, like we also like it was a good reminder when we when we spoke with Ron Wixo recently, is that it really pays big time, pays dividends uh, musically and financially and and career wise to be extremely versatile. And you're, uh, you know, what you can, you know, whether it's, I mean, I did not know. I mean, you know, you're talking to tech companies as well, in addition to uh, all you do musically. So I mean, it's 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 it obviously uh, works. Well, I I 
I had a point in my life where I just wanted to keep learning more stuff. I, I hope I keep, I could, this is a flame I hope to keep alive because I think this is what keeps people alive. Um, maybe I'm deluded about that, but yeah. I'm trying to just keep learning. I don't want to stay. I, I, yeah, sure. I've got ways to work. I also keep cha deliberately changing the way I'm working. I try not to get into work ruts in terms of methodology. So uh, I'm trying to be agile, at least within my field, if not walking down the street and uh, <laughs> doing the best I can. And that's how you made it off Long Island and into Connecticut, that stratosphere. Well, I was on Long Island. I, I was on Long Island until 2001. Oh, um, yeah. So whereabouts on Long Island are, are you from? And I realize that's a regional reference that it only appeals to a mind. small amount of I, listeners, but. I'm from Bethpage. I grew up, oh. I was born and bred in Bethpage, went to high school there. I, I grew up in Riverhead, primarily, oh. way out okay. east. And I went, to, I went to college in Connecticut, as a matter of fact. I, oh, whereabouts? Uh, University of New Haven. Oh, okay, cool. Out near West Haven. And Darren, we yeah, can, you can edit out Steve's regional uh, background there if you need to, but, but no, I, I fell in love with my interruptions and you have your regionalisms. <laughs> we, we all have our thing there. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I, as I said, I was glad to grow up when I did where I did before the plume got too big. Don't get me started. Um, <laughs> you know, the best page plume anyway. Um, but uh, there was great art going on around that time. And I made some really good friends that remain friends to this day that I learned from that took me under their wing and taught me like I was their little brother. And uh, I'm grateful and friendly to this day with these people. I, I would bet most people don't know that Long Island, particularly in that time frame, had a really fertile um, music scene. I mean, you know, people think New York, Chicago, LA, big cities, but... Long Island. I mean, when I was growing up, I and uh, when I started high school, Twisted Sister was just starting to break out. So there's there's my time frame. But I mean, Billy Joel was the soundtrack to my life. And in fourth grade, fifth grade, I mean, I knew exactly where he was from, and I learned about you know other bands and other you know just kind of what was essentially a really cool scene that wasn't just about New York City. That there was really something happening, you know, uh, on Long Island. Oh yeah, the burbs were the burbs were teeming in those days. <laughs> They're even more teeming now. They're almost obscenely teeming now. But um, <laughs> yeah, and I worked in a local music store on Long Island and met a lot of those people because I worked on the sales floor in retail. So uh, wow, you know, I, I would talk to them and sell them stuff. And yeah, was that Sam Ash? Oh, do we really have to? Fess <laughs> yes, it was. Yes, it was. <laughs> okay. Well, yes, the it was. Oh, okay. Briefly. I'm going to Sam Ash and Carl Place, the town that gave us Joe Satriani and Steve I, which brings it back to Daily Roth again. Oh, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Uh, you worked there, you said? You worked in Carl Place? No, I just oh. know it. From there was no Carl Place when I worked for Sam Ash. But um, I worked in their Huntington store, which is not where their Huntington store is now. But uh, And I worked there for basically a summer and uh, learned a lot. It was great. I very happy. Boy, was the gear good back then. <laughs> well, I've got no further questions. You got anything we missed, Steve? <laughs> it has just been a blast, Richard. Thank you so much. It's uh, it, I, uh, like you, I love learning new things and learn uh, things about the music and people that I love. So this is this is this is fantastic. Thank you. Well, thank you guys for the opportunity to tell stories. And uh, I want to wish my a happy new year and a happy holiday 
to every one of Dave's fans and uh, remind you all that I'm one of Dave's fans too. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, maybe we'll have you on again in the future and we'll find out which songs from the catalog you love the most. But in the meantime, <laughs> you know, best wishes to you and team there, Rich. Thank you guys. Thanks.